The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Kevin Hallinan believes that certainly applies to business. Welcome to Winning Business Radio, here at W4CY Radio. That's W4CY.com. And now, your host, Kevin Hallinan. So glad you're with us today. I'm your host, Kevin Hallinan. The mission of Winning Business Radio, as regular listeners know, is to offer insights and advice to help people avoid the mistakes of others, to learn best practices, the how-tos, the what-tos, the what-not-tos, to be challenged and certainly to be inspired by the successes of others. Every successful person I've ever talked to has had failures in their lives and careers. So while we all have to get our knees skinned once in a while, I'm driven to keep those scrapes from needing major surgery. So let's endeavor to learn from history so we don't repeat it. Today, my guest is Ken Estridge, business growth expert, speaker, and author of the soon-to-be-released Inspire Accountability, the breakthrough workplace transformation for 21st century leaders in the age of millennials. Here's Ken's bio. Ken is an experienced entrepreneur, business, and executive coach who has coached and advised hundreds of CEOs and senior managers of startups, early-stage growth companies, mid-market companies, and Fortune 500 companies to improve leadership effectiveness, accelerate growth, growth, and increase profitability. Ken's executive coaching clients have held the titles of CEO, CFO, COO, CTO, CIO, EVP, SVP, and VP. His work has included coaching senior executives in over 25 Fortune 500 companies, CEOs of private equity-owned firms, and owner-CEOs of privately held companies from $5 million to over a billion in sales. Ken's worked onboarding newly hired executives who've been promoted from within the organization and those who've been brought in from outside the company. In addition to founding his own management consulting firm in 1992, he's also provided executive coaching through Lore International Institute, now a division of Corn Ferry, Cambria Consulting, Executive Core, Mariposa, and Acuity. Ken's business coaching experience began in 1999 when he became a facilitator of CEO peer, group, peer groups for TAB, and that's the alternative board. During the following 10 years, he helped dozens of early-stage companies grow. In 2009, he became a, a certified Gazelles International Coach and focused his practice on mid-market companies with revenues of 10 to $500 million to teach his clients the best practices for scaling up their business and to facilitate their leadership team meetings and annual strategic planning re retreats. His work as a business coach and as an executive coach has been informed by 25 years of business experience as a senior decision maker in a wide range of companies from high tech to low tech, a true entrepreneur with an impressive track record. He's founded or co-founded 10 companies, served as president or CEO of four, served as a director of three more and a member of the advisory boards of many others. Ken's ability to quickly understand his clients' functional responsibilities and their key business challenges is greatly enhanced by his educational background. Get ready for this one. He received a Bachelor's of Science in Industrial Management from MIT, a Master's of Science from the Sloan School of Management at MIT, and a Doctorate of Business Administration from Harvard Business School. In addition, Ken has completed coaching certification and training programs from B-Coach, Coaches Training Institute, and Lore International Institute. He's been a guest panelist and lecturer at Harvard Business School, MIT's Sloan School of Management, the MIT Enterprise Forum, Babson, Tufts, and Northeastern. He served as a member of the Board of Governors of the Harvard Business School Association of Boston for six years and was an active member of the MIT Enterprise Forum of Cambridge for over 15 years. He's a composer and pianist world traveler, is conversant in French and Spanish, enjoys sailing, skiing, fitness and dancing, and of course, his ongoing per personal growth journey. Ken, welcome to Winning Business Radio. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's great to be here. And that's a tough, tough act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that guy? That's quite an impressive bio. Uh, one fun fact is uh, I really enjoyed myself one year. I was asked to be a sales coach at the uh, Sloan School's um, MBA sales competition. That was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I, I, it is a lot of fun, and I've, I've been very involved with MIT over the years. You know, it was interesting as I heard you do your introduction, because when I used to introduce myself, my motto was, you don't have to invent the wheel in order to enjoy the ride. Oh, I like it's very that. much what I hear you preaching to the choir, which is learn from other people's experience. Mm. It's much faster and less painful than learning from your own. No doubt. No doubt. And we're going to make mistakes anyway. But, you know, that's my mission. That's to help people uh, learn from guys like you. So let's talk a bit about your background. Um, can you walk us through the positions you've held through your career? It's a long, it's a long cycle. It is. It just, and tell you what, I'm particularly interested in the, in the 10 companies you founded or co-founded. But let me talk to you about a few of them. I'm not going to go sure. through all 10 of them. Perfect. But um, uh, I, I was, believe it or not, my very first company was while I was a graduate student at MIT. I was one of the, I was a co-founder with a partner of a company called Dare Computer Research, which was one of the first three computer dating companies in the country. Oh, that's funny. And it didn't go very well because we didn't have the internet and marketing was very expensive. And we learned that uh, we, we spent a whole year developing a software program to match you know, boys and girls up. And we couldn't get enough people to make the statistics of the computer mm. work. So we were sitting around my living room in Cambridge with a bunch of guys saying, hey, I've got a tall guy who wants to meet a tall woman. Let's see who we've got. And we were, <laughs> after having spent a whole year on this computer program, we were hand matching people. We made some great great relationships apparently but after a year we decided we just didn't have a cost effective way of marketing this mm. thing so we closed it down so that was my my first learning experience is get your marketing act yeah. together make sure that your cost of acquiring a, a client is less than, than the, the revenue you get from that client uh, fast forward if I'd stayed in that business maybe I'd have a multi-trillion dollar business today <laughs> you know? um, so let's see my next uh, business after that um, I was um, a graduate student at Harvard Business School when I decided that I wanted to learn about working in Wall Street. I, uh, I had kind of a long stay in school because I was trying to stay out of the Vietnam War, so I'm dating myself. But mm -hmm. uh, when I finished my master's degree, I was 23 years old and very draftable. And the only way to stay out of the Army at that time was to stay in graduate school. So I went to Harvard Business School. But I was very tired of living as a student. Back then, there were four of us living in an apartment for $300 a month. So it was you know, $75 a month per person for rent. This is a lot of years ago in Cambridge. Mm, today, wow, yeah. today, you can't rent a closet for $75. <laughs> but um, So I actually got a job in Wall Street. And I went down. Uh, I took a summer job as an investment research analyst. And um, I was on the job for all of two weeks when they got a new account to manage in Canada. It was a $35 million investment portfolio. Back then, that was a lot of money. And the guy who was running the firm, a guy named Fred Alger, who at the time was the number one go-go fund manager on Wall Street, mm -hmm. said to me, how would you like to go to Montreal and run a $35 million portfolio? So I was all of 24 years old, and I went to Montreal, and I was living in this penthouse apartment, driving a little sports car, having a lot of fun. Wow. And my job was to go invest this money. And 10% um, of that money was was allowed to go into venture capital investments. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like nothing today, but three and a half million dollars 50 years ago was a lot of money. You know, so, um, so we had some fun looking at very interesting developments, including we ended up investing in Commodore Business Machines, which was one of the first oh, computers yeah. ever. Yeah. And we invested in a container freight company, which was one of the first companies in containerized freight. Uh, I got flown to the top of... Um, what is now Whistler Mountain, to look at the resort development they were going to build there, which hadn't yet been built. We almost invested there, and I decided I just didn't have enough data. Mm. We got flown down to the Caribbean to look at resort condominiums in the Bahamas. So it was a very exciting time to be in the investment business. But after a year, I was told that if I didn't get back in school, I was going to lose my student status. I went back to being a student again. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward a year later, I said, gee, I was having too much fun working, so I took a job in investment banking. And I went to work for an investment banking firm in New York called Ladenburg Thalman. And they said, hey, we've got a Boston office. How would you like to run the office for us and be head of corporate finance? I said, fine. So I'm all of 25 years old running an investment banking office. <laughs> you know, so so I, I was kind of um, – I was on a fast track to see how quickly I could make a million dollars at an early age, but I kept being held back by school. So this is a long preamble to say that while I was sure. a graduate student writing my doctoral dissertation, I got an idea for a business having nothing to do with anything I was studying or writing about. And uh, it was a business called the Joy of Movement Center, which uh, was the first – it started out as a center for 50 different kinds of dance and exercise, including Tai Chi and yoga, martial arts, 
all different kinds of dance and movement. And we were the first people to get into the aerobic dance and aerobic fitness business. And then we built the first gym in the city of Boston. So Joy of Movement, wow. which started out as just a part-time endeavor while I was writing a dissertation, doubled every year for the next five years. And five years later, I was living in a million-dollar house. Wow. Let me pause and, you right uh, there because I have a couple sure. of listener questions. The first question was from a couple of minutes ago. How did you find the question from the listeners? How did you find the time to do all that? Well, it's, it's interesting because um, – while I was a graduate student, I had this idea, and I didn't really have the time to run the business, so I looked to put together a good team. And I think mm. the secret of that success was I hired the right people. Uh, I found uh, uh, a woman who was a secretary at Harvard and put her in charge of the office because she had great administrative skills. And I found a woman who had a master's degree in dance education and put her in charge of hiring all the dance teachers and all the fitness mm. teachers. And I found a promoter who had promoted rock concerts on the Esplanade and put him in charge of all of our advertising and promotions. I put this whole team together. Wow. And I actually think the business was successful for a couple of reasons. Number one, we were in the right place at the right time. And our first center was in Cambridge and it was a very kind of you know, um, active place for things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, um, I stayed out of the way. I, I, found, I found great people. I gave them a clear vision. I said, here's what we're trying to do. Go. I started this business, by the way, with $5,000. Wow. And it became a big business. We ended up having seven combination dance and fitness centers, five in, in Boston and two in New York. And at one point, I was commuting back and forth to the city. My, my center in New York was down in... Um, in the village, it was in the it was it was right near NYU, mm -hmm. and Madonna was a member, and Sting was a member, and the village people were members. We had all these wow. rock stars coming with their limos parked outside while they took classes with with us. So it was an exciting chapter of my life. That's pretty and, cool. Um, I ran that business for many years, and while I was in that business, I started several other businesses. I started a business to do um, fitness classes in corporations at uh, after work and during the lunch hour. And mm -hmm. we had clients like Boston, like Bank of Boston, which is now Bank of America. Mm -hmm. We had um, Arthur D. Little, American Science and Engineering, five of the Harvard-affiliated hospitals. And we were basically running exercise classes at lunch and after work for all these organizations. Wow. Then I started another organization just to train fitness instructors because we didn't have enough aerobic instructors. So we started training our own teachers. Um, then I started a company to... Uh, take what were previously racquetball and tennis clubs. There were no mm -hmm. multi-sport clubs back then. So we went into racquetball clubs and took out two racquetball courts and put in a fitness center. We took out tennis courts and put in a fitness center. Mm. So I created a company called Sports Club Fitness Centers that went around partnering with all these clubs that are now multi-sport clubs. Mm -hmm. So I was really a pioneer. I built literally the first fitness center in Boston that had exercise classes and Nautilus equipment in the same room. <laughs> Previously, there were weightlifting gyms and there were dance studio classes. Mm -hmm. We built the first facility in Kenmore Square, Boston in 1982. And that business, a year after we started it, was doing a million dollars in sales. So it was a nice run. We really, I, I really felt like I was a pioneer in the whole fitness industry. Um, and after 18 years, um, I ran into some hiccups talking about having failures along the way. I was married to a woman who was my vice president of sales, mm -hmm. which is probably a no-no with hindsight. Don't marry your staff. Uh, <laughs> we went through a very difficult divorce, which ended up dividing up the company, and yeah. the company was never the same after that. So I got out of that business and decided I wanted to try my hand at something in high technology because I had spent a lot of years at MIT. Mm -hmm. And um, that was when I founded uh, the Enterprise Development Group. And the purpose of that company was to work with um, early stage startups out of MIT and help them write business plans and help them raise money from angel investors and venture capital investors. And I also helped them put together their leadership teams. So I got involved with about you know, half a dozen different startups out of MIT, some of which did okay, some of which didn't, but it was a hard way to make a living as a consultant. Well, yeah, that was my question. What was the revenue model? Terrible. <laughs> it was well I got a lot of paper you know yep, yep. they didn't have a lot of money to pay me so what happened is I, I, I realized over time this was not a good consulting revenue model mm. and I, I originally did it because I was looking for my next business along the way I looked at a ton of franchises and I almost bought a laser tag franchise but decided not to do it and um, but I was looking for whatever my next business was going to be and in the meantime I found it was fun consulting well after five years of doing this one of the investors who had invested in three companies with me called me up and said, I'm tired of being found. 
would you just help me manage my money? I, I thought this would be easier than mm-hmm. trying to find money. So I said, fairly naively, sure, why not? You know, I said, I'm not a very good employee. Let's work out some kind yeah. of arrangement where yeah. I can work with you but still have my own, you know, my own space. So we set up a retainer relationship, and my job was to be the point person for the seven companies he had already invested in because he was very busy. He mm-hmm. was the co-founder and co-chairman of a large software company. He had made a lot of money in the software space and was anxious to put it to work. And so I had two jobs. One was oversee seven CEOs and make sure they did a good job. And the second job was find something new to invest in. Yeah. So I was going to the MIT and screening opportunities. And it was a tough job because, number one, I realized how little I knew about all these companies that were walking in the door telling me what they wanted us to invest in them. Mm-hmm. Number two, as a venture capitalist, you say no 99 out of 100 times, mm. and it's kind of depressing yeah. Yeah. to have all these guys come in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and say no to them. Having said that, I did find one very good investment, a company called Harmonics Music, that ended up creating Guitar Hero. Oh, it made a ton cool. of money for everybody who invested yeah. in it. So uh, the man I was working for ended up making $79 million in that one investment. Wow. Hey, and let's take our, dollars. I'm sorry to do this. Let's take our <laughs> first break right there. Uh, we will be right back with Ken Estridge. Okay. You're listening to Winning Business Radio with Kevin Hallinan on W4CY Radio. That's W4CY.com. Don't go away. More helpful information is coming right up, right here on Winning Business Radio. Behind everything you're searching for is something you're actually looking for. When you search with the real yellow pages, you get more than a contractor. You get a whole new curb appeal. It's not just getting directions to a dry cleaner with YP.com. It's rescuing an old favorite from the back of the closet. And it's more than finding a locksmith with YP.com on your mobile. It's getting to sleep in your own bed. Whatever it might be, there are more ways to search and more ways to find exactly what you're looking for with the real yellow pages, YP.com, and YP.com on your mobile, only from AT&T. What's up? This is Jazz Safara. You're listening to W4CY Radio. Turn it up. Have you ever dreamt of being on the radio? Well, now is your chance. Be a radio show guest on the number one ranked internet radio station and promote you and your business for free. Yes, you heard it, free. Business advertising right here on W4CY.com. Call 561-506-4031 now to get booked on one of our shows. That's 561-506-4031. Get your free advertising now. Be seen, be heard on the Internet's number one ranked radio station right here in West Palm Beach. What a way for your business to have a voice. Now is the time to advertise your business on W4CY.com. Call 561-506-4031 for a deal you won't refuse. Again, that's 561-506-4031. Don't wait. Call now. Now back to Winning Business Radio with Kevin Hallinan, presenting exciting topics and expert guests with one goal in mind, to help you succeed in business. Here once again is Kevin Hallinan. We're back with Ken Estridge, business growth expert, speaker, and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Inspire Accountability, the Breakthrough Workforce Transformation for 21st Century Leaders in the Age of Millennials. We're going to get to the book, but talk, talk about a few more of the uh, more interesting um, roles you've had, uh, leadership roles, etc. You were just talking about uh, Guitar Hero, which is pretty cool. Well, I was about to give you a segue into executive coaching because while Perfect. I was working for this Perfect. man, it, it was a very small boutique inve- you know, venture capital firm. There were three of us, um, and I was kind of the low man on the totem pole. I was doing all the work. <laughs> but um, uh, while I was working for him, at one point he turned to me and he said, I don't want you to be the smartest person in the room. He said, I've got seven CEOs. Your job is to make them smarter. And he said, have you ever studied coaching? And I said, no. And he said, well, I think you would benefit from studying coaching because your job is to make these guys as smart as possible. Mm-hmm. So way back in 1997, while I was working in venture capital, I started studying executive coaching. 
And that was when I first went to the Coaches Training Institute. And then mm-hmm. later, later, I worked with a guy named Mike Jay, who ran something called Be Coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, long story short, I continued to study coaching for several years. And um, uh, I, I left my venture capital position after a couple of years because I just found it was hard working for somebody else who was making all the decisions. Mm-hmm. I liked making the decisions myself. And um, in 2002, I got a call from Lore International. They, I, I was introduced to them, to them through the person I was studying coaching with. Mm-hmm. They had just gotten a contract to coach 270 high potential executives at Cisco Systems. They were the designated worldwide coaching arm for Cisco. And they were looking for people with a tech background and a coaching background, and mm-hmm. I, I fit the bill. And they said, how would you like to help us with Cisco? And I thought, this sounds interesting. So I uh, started work with them in 2002 as a coach at Cisco, and that, engaged, that one contract lasted for six years. <laughs> Was there a particular methodology they wanted you to follow? Yeah, they had their own methodology, their own assessment tools. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they asked me to fly out to Durango, Colorado, where they were based. And I went mm-hmm. through their little training program, and I learned to use their methods and their procedures mm-hmm. and their assessments. And I coupled that with, with everything else I had studied. And next thing I knew, I was coaching senior executives at wow. Cisco. Yeah. And uh, I formed a good relationship with them. And they started bringing me into other companies like Ford Motor Company and J&J. And then uh, years later, they were acquired by Corn Ferry, which is the largest executive mm-hmm. search firm in the country. Sure. And Corn Ferry continues to bring me uh, engagements even now. Last year, I did, a, I did a, a coaching engagement at Pfizer with an SVP through Corn Ferry. And I did an, an engagement with... Um, an EVP at Fidelity. So these firms continue to send me work. And um, after I'd been working with Lore for a while, I said, gee, there must be other coaching firms around there like you know, that need coaches. Right. And I actually had a very interesting introduction to the head of leadership development at Fidelity. And when I met him, he said, I'd love to hire you. You've got great credentials, but we don't work with single coaches. We only work with coaching firms because we want to have multiple coaches to offer every client. Mm-hmm. So he introduced me to Cambria Consulting, and I've been working for them now for 11 or 12 years. So, so I, I basically do contract coaching for four different firms, plus mm-hmm. I do my own clients. And um, uh, in 2000, let me think, 2000, in the year 2000, actually, prior to starting executive coaching, I had bought this franchise called Tab, the Alternative Board, which is a little bit like Vistage. Right. And they were in the business of organizing uh, executive peer groups and mostly smaller businesses one to ten million dollars in sales and what we did was we brought them together as a group we shared best practices we did deep dives into each company's finances we tried to help each company as much as we could and people were paying to come to a group meeting once a month and plus an individual each company got an hour with me every month so over the um, over the years from 2000 to about 2009 I must have worked with a hundred different small businesses and um, I typically would run two different peer groups, one with eight, eight people and one with 10 people, mm-hmm. or 10 companies. And they would rotate. Some would stay for several years, some mm-hmm. would stay for a year. But over the, over the course of uh, nine years, I worked with a lot of different companies in virtually every industry. And some of those companies I'm still in touch with today because they've grown very large. Mm-hmm. Um, after nine years of doing this, um, I attended one of Gazelle's uh, Gazelles is, a, is a, an educational organization that yeah, I was going to ask you about market that. companies. And so I, I went to one of their summits and I loved it. They had great speakers there. They had great education. And they were focused on mid-market companies. And what I learned, again, you asked me about a revenue model. Mm. It's almost impossible to get paid by startups. It's possible to get paid by early stage companies, but it's, you can make a lot more money working with bigger companies. So, yeah. so when, I, when I started doing the... Um, uh, Gazelle's consulting, I said, gee, all of a sudden I'm working with companies that do 50 million in sales or 70 million or 100 million. And these companies can afford to pay me a lot more money. So um, in 2009, I closed up my executive peer group meetings that I was running mm-hmm. and decided to focus my, my consulting work uh, on the mid-market companies. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years uh, in addition to my executive coaching. So today I have basically two legs I stand on, executive mm-hmm. coaching and business coaching. And um, what led to this book of mine, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, was the fact okay. that every every company I work with has issues with accountability. It doesn't matter whether they're a $1 million company or a billion-dollar company. They all have challenges getting people to do what you want them to do. And it's gotten worse today with 
with all the millennials coming into business and with older leaders trying to manage millennials. But um, I, I left out some of the companies I founded along mm-hmm. the way. While I was back in the 1990s, um, I was involved in a company that was bringing H-1B contractors from India over to do software development here and also outsourcing. Um, I was the president of this company called Intersoft Technology, and we were uh, sending software contracts to India and bringing Indian contractors into this country. Mm-hmm. Um, a year later, I co-founded and became chairman of a company called Sales Temps that was in the business of providing temporary sales staff on a seasonal basis. And... Um, we, we grew that to about a million dollars and then got an offer from a competitor and decided to take it because nobody in the business really felt like they wanted to focus on growing this thing. Mm-hmm. But So I've had a lot of startups, a lot of work with, with yeah. early stage businesses. Yeah. And, you know, some people are really good at startups and some people are good at taking startups and growing them. And um, in, 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 in my entrepreneurial years, I was really good at getting businesses off the ground, but I didn't have a lot of experience taking them from 10 to 100 million. Mm-hmm. What I've been doing in my consulting practice is really becoming an expert. At taking them from ten to one hundred, or from one hundred to two hundred, mm-hmm. and it's a whole different, whole different way of thinking, because it's all about building high performance teams. It's all about getting really, really clear about priorities and getting team alignment so everybody's rowing in the same direction. You know, it's all about having a strategy that differentiates you from the competition. So, the challenges of a firm that's fifty million dollars are very different than, the, than a firm who's a million dollars, because mm-hmm. the million dollar firm typically has a CEO wearing four or five hats. Right. And he's employing himself to do jobs nobody should ever hire him to do. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> Whereas when you get into a bigger firm, you can afford to have specialists. And you've got a CFO who's got 20 years of experience being a CFO. And you've got a head of marketing who's a professional marketing person, mm-hmm. a head of sales who's a professional salesperson. Now the question is, how do you get them all to, all to work together? And how do you allocate resources? And how do you make tough strategic decisions? So that's kind of a quick jump to sort of where I think I am today. That's perfect. So the, so the book, let me give the title one more time, Inspire Accountability, the Breakthrough Workplace Transformation for 21st Century Leaders in the Age of Millennials. And for those that wonder, because I know there's some discussion on this topic, most sources, and I know I, I read that in your book as well, most sources say that it's people born from 81 to 96, or if you will, it's 22 to 38-year-olds as of today, as of the right. air, this airing. Yeah, and what I'm finding actually is that the 36 and 7 and 8-year-olds mm-hmm. are almost a different generation. Mm-hmm. They're almost the next generation. Um, so even though it's technically goes to age 38, um, I think that the real issue is the you know, 21 to 35-year-olds. It's the people post-college mm-hmm. in their first, second, third job uh, who grew up with computers, mm-hmm. who were the sons and daughters of, of um uh, of the of the boomer generation, if you will. That's me. I've got uh, four of those. Yeah, and many of them grew up with a lot of entitlement. They, they, they their parents kind of. I hate to say their parents spoiled them, but their parents wanted to give them everything they could. Mm-hmm. Their parents didn't want them to experience the same stresses. They. It, it, it's natural. Parents want their kids to have the best life possible. But uh, the paradigm. When I think about what it was like for me when I took a job, the last question I would ask is, what's the what's the office look like? Hmm. Or right. are there any right. games? Or how much right. free time do I get? I mean, when I had my first job in Wall Street back in 1969, mm-hmm. um, it was expected that I would work from the time I woke up in the morning until midnight every single day. And that if I could do this for six or seven years, I'd become a partner in the firm and make a million bucks. Mm-hmm. And that was my motivation, and that was their motivation, and they killed people coming out of graduate school. Mm-hmm. You just you became a slave to the company, and it was true for law firms, it was true for investment banking firms, it was true for consulting firms. You know, the rule back then was it was hard to get a great job at a great place. Places like Goldman Sachs had their pick of the best people from every graduate school in the country lining up to get jobs there, and people would kill themselves just to become to get up to partner level. There was no such thing as work, work-life work balance, though. Work-life balance was not a discussion topic. Mm-hmm. Perks were not a discussion topic. Uh, a lot of the issues of today were not discussion topics. I mean, I'm working with a company right now. Does hundred and They did $102 million last year. They're in the staffing business. And something like 90% of their employees are under the age of 35. Wow. So it's a completely millennial company. Mm-hmm. 
and they they have free food and free beverages and Friday afternoons off in the summer and you know, yeah. free free beer and wine on Friday afternoon and flex hours if you want to come in at 10 o'clock and stay till 7 instead of coming in at 8 and leaving at 5. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're doing everything they can to attract people because the balance of power has changed. What's yeah. happened is, first of all, millennials expect something different. And second of all, there's very low unemployment. And because there's very low unemployment, and there's also very good information on the internet about what's available for alternative work, and what what are the what are the wages, and what are the benefits, and are, is management enlightened? Um, people feel that they can jump jobs very quickly, and millennials tend to change jobs every two years. So the biggest challenge now is how do you attract and retain these people, not just how do you. It's no longer how do I find a job. It's basically how do I attract and find a good person. That's a great place for a break. We're going to come back in just a couple minutes. We will dig down into this book. Uh, I want to talk about the concepts, some examples, some solutions. We'll be right back with Ken Estridge. You're listening to Winning Business Radio with Kevin Hallinan on W4CY Radio. That's W4CY.com. Don't go away. More helpful information is coming right up, right here on Winning Business Radio. Jesse from Stick to Your Guns, and you're listening to W4CY Radio. Have you ever dreamed of having your own radio show? Well, W4CY Radio makes dreams come true. You can be a radio personality on the number one ranked internet radio station in West Palm Beach, Florida. We can be heard in 105 countries and all U.S. states. Promote your business. Earn up to $10,000 per month and more. It's all up to you. Have fun and be heard. Call 561-506-4031. That's 561-506-4031. Start your radio show now. Fiesta Pet Deli, South Florida's original and only fresh food deli for pets. We carry a full line of products like Bravo, Nature's Variety, and BioComplete. We have FDA-approved meals that are prepared daily. Stop by our brand new store located at Sample Road and the Turnpike in the Festival Flea Market in Pompano, Florida, or call 954-971-2500. Check us out online at www.realfoodforpets.com. If your pet's overweight, suffers from skin problems, or you suspect food allergies, we have the solution. We also carry a large variety of pet strollers, bedding, apparel, collars, leashes, natural chews, and grooming supplies. Veterinarian owned and operated, Fiesta Pet Deli's mission is to help every pet owner have the healthiest pet they possibly can. Call us today for local deliveries or shipping throughout the United States. Call Fiesta Pet Deli today at 954-971-2500. That's 954-971-2500. Hey, this is Dylan Villain from the Wild, and you're listening to W4CY Radio. Now back to Winning Business Radio with Kevin Hallinan, presenting exciting topics and expert guests with one goal in mind, to help you succeed in business. Here once again is Kevin Hallinan. We're back with Ken Estridge. He's a business growth expert, speaker, and author of Inspire Accountability, the breakthrough workforce transformation for 21st century leaders in the age of millennials. So Ken, who should read this book? I think any leader who had any any leader with with people working for them, any leader, particularly in companies with white collar professional mm-hmm. young people working, you know, if you're in the if you're in high tech, if you're in staffing, if you're mm-hmm. in IT services, if you're in professional services, if you've got a population of 21 to 35 or 36 year olds working for you, you should mm-hmm. read this book. I would also say there are some lessons in this book that apply to anybody, not just the millennials, uh, because I really think that it has a lot to do with how you interact with people and what kinds of communication you have with people. Mm. In fact, the essence of this book is kind of a process of inquiry to go through with people. And it advocates a paradigm shift in the way you think about Mm -hmm. accountability. 
which I'm happy to talk about when you're ready to hear it. Yeah, I'm going to make this. Let me just mention this. You suggested in the book that leaders who haven't seen what their current and past employees are saying on Glassdoor, Indeed and other sites like that are missing out on a tremendously valuable source of info. And you said the higher up they are in their organization, the more isolated they are or insulated they are from those comments. Yeah, that's absolutely true. What I find is that particularly in larger organizations, the more senior you are, the less time you have to talk to the rank and file. And unless you're out there actively wandering around and talking to people or conducting, you know, quarterly uh, employee feedback reports, chances are you don't know what the front line is thinking. And you may be very surprised by what they're writing on Glassdoor because uh, a, lot of empl- a lot of employees today know that before they even want to interview for your mm. business, they'll read Glassdoor sure. and they'll see what kinds of ratings your employees give you. I mean, I do it when I've, I'm talking to a prospective client. I want to know what, what employees are saying. Right. By the way, here's a listener question. Um, how would you apply these principles if you're in the planning stages of a business? Pre-launch, say. Okay. Well, again, it depends on the kind of business mm-hmm. that you're in. But what, what I would say is um, there was an interesting study done years ago. Now, I don't know whether this applies to this person who's asking this question. But um, a professor at uh, Sloan School, Ed Roberts, wrote a book called Entrepreneurs in High Technology. Mm-hmm. And he tried to look at what were the things that made companies successful versus unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. And he studied over 20 years, hundreds of companies. He came to one conclusion. And the one conclusion was there was a very high correlation between the number of co-founders and the likelihood of success. Interesting. That in today's world, it's so complex that it's very hard for one or even two people to build a very successful business. You're better off with three or four. Mm. Having said that, how does that inform this question? If you start by yourself, you'll frequently start with nothing and do everything yourself. Mm. If you start out saying, what's it going to take to build a real business here? And who are three or four like-minded people with different skills than I have? And how much much resources do we need to make this right? Mm -hmm. You'll start with a whole different perspective on the business. You'll start building a business rather than creating a job for yourself. And you'll have other people who are able to push back And if you start and you say, okay, I'm really building a business here, something that I could actually sell or can actually scale, and you start with three or four executives who are partners in the business, they don't have to be equal partners, you may be the majority partner, Mm -hmm. but three or four people with a stake in the business and with senior level skills. So maybe you're in charge of sales and someone else is doing marketing and someone else is doing finance and someone else is doing human resources. You're going to build the business faster. And most early stage businesses today, guess who they hire? Young people. Mm. Mm -hmm. So any advice you can receive from this book about how to deal with young people, including your partners, will be helpful to you. And uh, you're ultimately, the minute you have employees, accountability becomes an issue. Well, there are two things I want to ask you about. One is accountability. The other is millennials, though. So I'm not a bit defensive, but I have I'm a dad to two young men and two young women who are in that millennial generation from 22 to 28. Is is too much being made? I mean, we hear it a lot. Is too much being made of their impact on the workforce? Are they getting a bad rap? Uh, The answer is yes and no. Okay, Mm -hmm. Um, they have gotten kind of a bad rap, but I think part of it is because we're managing them wrong. Mm. Okay, good. What's important to understand is that by 2020, which is just around the corner, they're going to be 50% of the workforce. Wow. And by 2025, they're going to be 75%. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, underdeveloped countries like India or Africa, they're 75% of the workforce already. So um, when you think about the fact that they're going to be a predominant part of the workforce, we're going to have to learn how to manage them and how to interact with them. So when, we, when you asked if they're getting a bad rap, the fact is that if you manage them the way you, you were the way you were managed, chances are you're not going to get the results you want. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I talk about this paradigm shift in the way you think about accountability. And so I'm going to talk about that for a moment because yeah, be I wanted you to I wanted to, to hear how you define accountability anyway. Well, I mean, ultimately, accountability is an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility for doing something you commit to doing. Okay. Okay? So you say you're going to do X, you do X. You say you're going to do it by Friday, you get it done by Friday. Mm -hmm. Okay, the problem is that when most company leaders think about accountability, they talk about how do you hold people accountable. 
right? I hear yeah. it all the time. And this notion of holding people accountable is usually what I call or else management. It's based on fear. If you don't get it done by such and such a date or such and such a standard, you're fired, or you don't get promoted, or you, you know, you don't, you don't get some of the things you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is that most management today is fear-based, and it's good for driving short-term results. If you're in the trenches in a war, command and control may work. Command and control doesn't work with millennials in general. They don't want to be told what to do. Yet. You might, you might say, well, what's wrong with being told what to do? Mm -hmm. Well, they want to be given clear tasks and clear metrics, mm -hmm. but they also want to be able to challenge it and say, you know, I've got 12 things on my plate. What do you want me to drop in order to get this done by tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Or... I know you'd like me to stay till 9 o'clock tonight, but I've got a commitment with a friend or a girlfriend or a wife or a child or whatever, mm -hmm. and I'm not willing, to, I'm not being paid to stay till 9 o'clock at night. So you need to have a different kind of conversation with them because they want to be respected. They want their work-life balance to be important to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a client I was coaching at a large high-tech firm where he had two young girls, six and eight, who had ballet recitals and events they wanted him to come to. Mm -hmm. And his boss's attitude is, when I say jump, you jump. I never want to hear about your family. And if a client needs you to get on a plane and run to a, a meeting, you run to a meeting. And he ended up jumping out of the company instead of jumping where his <laughs> boss wanted him to jump. Because he said, my children are most important to me. And I'm not going to make the business so important that I can't be the kind of father I want to be. So you've got a different set of values you're working with. You've got young people who say, I'm smart. I've got access to the world's knowledge on the internet. I don't need mm -hmm. to learn it the slow old way. Right. And I don't really have to, I don't measure my success by being here from eight to five. I measure it by what I accomplish. So let me work my own hours. And oh, by the way, I don't really have to sit at this desk to talk on the phone. I can work from home. Mm -hmm. And I can probably get it done better because I'll save an hour commuting back and forth in traffic. There was a so, statistic that you gave that that blew me out of the water. According to the Gallup organization, 85% disengagement. Talk about that. So that's not just millennials. That's also, believe it or right. not, Gen X. And, and uh, yeah, there's a huge amount of disengagement with work. Most people are have one leg out the door and they're looking, one foot out the door, they're looking for their next job. Mm -hmm. And people tend to join companies and leave bosses. Why do they leave their bosses? Because they don't like the way they're managed. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many people I've met, even even some of my executive coaching clients at big firms where they're making huge salaries, anywhere from a half a million dollars to a million plus in salary, mm -hmm. between salary and stock options and whatever else, you know, bonuses at the end of the year, where they can't stand working for their boss because they don't feel like their boss cares about them. They don't feel like what's important to them is important to their boss. They don't feel respected and appreciated. They may be micromanaged or they get taken for granted, or their boss only talks to them when there's a problem. So if you're, if you're the kind of boss who thinks no news is good news, think again. The particularly millennial generation wants to get a lot of praise. They want to know they're doing a good job. They want a relationship with their boss as a friend and mentor who cares about them. They want to know that you're in my corner and you're here for me, not just I'm here for you. Yeah. And they have no allegiance to a boss who has no allegiance to them. I was interviewing someone today, a new client of mine who's an SVP at a large financial services firm. Who I said, I said, how do you grade yourself on managing people? He said, really well. I said, what's one thing you could do better? He said, well, I never find the time to thank people for good jobs. He said, all I do is tell them when there's a problem. <laughs> and that happens I all said, the time, right? Yeah. He said, I'm too busy. He said, I'm just too busy to let people know I appreciate them. I said, well… What do you think that costs you in terms of employee engagement? So what you need to know about working with millennials is that they want to know that they're appreciated. They want to know that their boss is in their corner. They want to know that the company and or their boss is investing in them, mm -hmm. will educate them, will give them access to additional training, access to career advancement. The flip side, the negative side on this is sometimes they expect too much too soon, too fast. And it's not uncommon for someone to take a job and say, six months later, when am I getting promoted? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've coached vice presidents in their 50s who have been vice presidents for 10 years and who haven't been promoted to SVP. And I've met millennials who are 26 who think after six months they're supposed to get a promotion. Um, I see someone just ask, what is Glassdoor? So Glassdoor is an online, it's an internet website that enables employees to put comments 
about uh, the place where they work. And, um, and yes, you can't expect people to work late for free, but bosses do it all the time. Particularly when someone's on salary. I'm just I'm reading the little comments that are flying yeah, on the screen here. It says no one gets paid enough to do. That. I agree with you. But the fact is that if you fa if you look at different generations, when I was a worker out of school and I had the world's best education, that was my expectation. My expectation was I owed my soul to the company store because I wanted to right. get ahead. Right. I, I never thought twice about going home with four hours of reading to do, because it was important to me. And. Uh, I'm sorry, some of these things are flashing That's too all right. fast for me to right. read them while I'm talking. But I, did, I agree with you that some of these comments that are coming in say a lot of bosses know nothing about their employees. In fact, I asked this guy I was interviewing today. I said, um, if you were to think about the people that you see every day at work, how many of them do you know their birthday? Do you know their spouse's name? Do you know if they have kids? Do you know what their hobbies are? Right. He, said, he said, I don't know any of this stuff. And I said, so how can you have a relationship with them that goes beyond problem solving? Right. How do you understand what motivates them? Yeah. How do you, yeah. How do you make them feel cared about? How do you make them – why should they go the extra mile for you if you won't go the extra mile for them and you don't really care about them? So um, that was a long-winded answer to That's good. do a millennials get a bad rap. They get a bad rap because their leaders don't understand how to interface with them. Right. And what my book outlines is a whole process of inquiry. And the premise in my book is that people do things for reasons that are logical to them, even if it looks illogical from the outside. And mm -hmm. I didn't invent that, okay? That's in a wonderful book called Freakonomics, which basically looks at people sure. who engage in bizarre behaviors from the outside looking in. Like, why do kids deal drugs in the ghetto when it's dangerous and doesn't pay them very much and they can get killed? The answer is because the people they admire are walking around with fancy cars and gold chains and sexy women, and they're all the drug mm -hmm. dealers. Yeah. And they want to be just like them. So what you need to do is assume that people are doing things for logical reasons to themselves. If that's true, then when people don't do what you expect them to do, the question is, why not? And so I have this 7C outline. We're on the same page, literally, because I was just about to ask you to go over the 7Cs. Perfect. Okay. So the first C is culture. And if it's not, if you don't have a culture where it's safe to challenge your boss, to ask questions, to say you don't know how to do something, to ask for more resources, to ask for more training, to ask to, to give the assignment to someone else because you're overloaded, to ask for more time, to negotiate deadlines, if it's not safe to have those kind of conversations, and by the way, there are many companies where it's not safe to do mm -hmm. this. I've coached in companies, large ones, very prominent ones, where when your boss says jump, you say how high. You never say why. If you say why, that's bad. So culture is number one. If you don't have a culture that allows you to challenge your boss, to ask questions, you can't get to number two. Go ahead, would you? We only have about three minutes, so okay. clarity is the next. Yeah, so clarity is, okay, so let's imagine it's possible to have good communication with each other, that you can mm -hmm. ask questions, you can challenge your boss. Then the question is, how good are the bosses at communicating exactly what they want by when and not, over, and not just saying, okay, get this done, get this done, get that done without specifying whether they want it fast or perfectly accurate. Right, otherwise everything's whether, a priority, right? Whether they really need it by Friday, exactly. And so it's up to your boss to help you stack rank your priorities and know what you can delay or drop or delegate to someone else and what you really have to get done yourself. It's up to them to make clear how you're going to be measured. for the. How will the results of this be measured? So I've had people say, well, gee, I thought you wanted it done instantly. I'm sorry if I made a few typos. And the boss said, well, I wanted it letter perfect. And the answer is, if you wanted it letter perfect, I probably couldn't have done it so quickly. Mm. And I literally had someone who's got a software coder who's perfect but too slow. And another software coder who's fast but not perfect. <laughs> I said, what do you want? He said, well, sometimes I want one and sometimes I want the other. That's so, clarity, right? Absolutely. How about capacity? Well, the capacity thing really is, do you know what's on your employees' plates before you give them something else to do? Mm. And are you having those conversations? And are you helping them make their workday reasonable? Are you helping them stack rank? Because time management is all about priority management. Right. right. I'm going to move through these quickly because we're almost out of time. So yeah. the next one is competence. And what happens is a lot of times people get hired to do one job and they get asked to do something else. Jobs have a way of changing in real time, particularly today and particularly in technology businesses. Change is happening exponentially. 
So when you hire someone, you need to know not just can they do something, but how quickly can they learn new things? And how open are they to learning? Are they, are they a good learner? Are they a fast learner? Are they willing to do things they were never trained to do? And when they're willing to do things they were never trained to do, how can you support them with the right training? And how can you allow them to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes? If you have a culture where you can't make mistakes and where you're pushing people to do things they've never done before, you're setting people up for failure. Thus, which, competence. Which leads to confidence, which yeah. is a lot of times people say, well, I can probably get it done, but I'm not confident. I'll do it to your standard or I'll do it well enough. And you need to build the confidence of people so that they don't feel like they're sticking their neck out to do something you've asked them to do. I realize I'm racing through these pretty that's quickly. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, commitment is fine. really the toughest one, okay? Mm. And I spoke before about does your boss care about you and does the company care about you? And um, if your boss doesn't care about you and the company doesn't care about you, why should you care about them? Commitment is all about is your heart connected to your job and to your boss and to your team? And will you do whatever it takes to make your boss look good or to make mm -hmm. your company be successful or to make your team win? If you really deeply care about pe people, I guess it was Napoleon who said, give me enough red ribbon and I can win any war. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, people will go to war for a ribbon, but they won't yeah. go to war for money. And so uh, it's, money doesn't bring out the best in people. What brings out the best in people is a sense of loyalty to a mission and loyalty to a team and loyalty to people. So, if you don't, if you're not committed to the development and growth and well-being of your people, don't expect them to be committed to you. All right, compensation in ten seconds. Sorry. So ten seconds is, don't expect people to do stuff they're not getting paid mm. to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, the minute you make somebody a manager, you assume you own them, and all of a sudden, the forty-hour work week becomes a sixty-five-hour yeah. work week, with no extra pay. It's not fair. And. Tr Today, compensation should be transparent. People should know what, other, what each other get paid. They should know what competitors are paying people. They can find a lot of this stuff on the web. And if they feel unfairly treated, they're not going to be happy employees. They're not going to stay. So that where can we quick, get that? That was a that, blitzkrieg through my seven C's. Fantastic. Okay. Well done. Where can the book be purchased? Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It will be available April 9th. You can actually pre-order the book today. If you go to Amazon and look for Inspire Accountability, and you look by my name, Ken Estridge, um, you can place an advance order for the book. It's coming out in paperback version. And um, it will also be available as an ebook if you want to download it and, and read the electronic book. Great. And people can reach out to you. Give us your website real quick. Oh, sure. My website is just, is just kenestridge.com. Perfect. So shoot me an email. My email is ken at kenestridge. You can shoot me an email and say, hey, love to talk with you. Love to you know, learn more from you. I'm available. I'm here to help. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the time. Well, thank you, Kevin. This was fun. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This is a show about business and business challenges. If you're looking to grow your business, reach out to me, Kevin, at winningbusinessradio.com. We develop sales leaders into true coaches and mentors and sales teams into high achievers. Thank you to the hardest-working engineer in radio. That's Rebel Medler. We're going to be back at it next Monday, April 1st. No fooling. At 4 p.m. Eastern, when my guest will be Gina Abudi of Abudi Consulting Group, management consultant and change leader. Until then, this is Kevin Hallinan. You've been listening to Winning Business Radio with your host, Kevin Hallinan. If you missed any part of this episode, the podcast is available on Talk 4 Podcasting and iHeartRadio. For more information and questions, go to winningbusinessradio.com or check us out on social media. Tune in again next week and every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time to listen live to Winning Business Radio on W4CY Radio, W4CY.com. Until then, let's succeed where others have failed and win in business with Kevin Hallinan and Winning Business Radio.